The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 12th, 2017 from Sleet. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, the sculptor behind the bull of Wall Street. The charging bull is quite upset. You see, the original meaning of his art has been changed and mutilated beyond recognition. The bull, installed under cover of darkness in 1987, has become a New York icon, but it has been paired with another statue, which is a new New York icon, the fearless girl statue. She stands defiant in front of the bull, and sculptor Arturo de Modica says, Mi dispiace, not what I intended. He wants the fearless girl removed, possibly under cover of darkness, in keeping with precedent. Now, of course, he has been derided as anti-fearless girl. But you know what? I think he's pro-girl. I think the guy's right. What a terrible message this sends. Kids from New York, they're all city dwellers. They don't know from bulls. They're going to take away the wrong message. They see a bull, they think, oh, I got to stand in its way. Like, I don't know, like a statue would. This is going to be some big trouble for a little girl, and then who bears responsibility? As I understand the law, it's Arturo de Modica. Also, when you think about it, put aside the fact that you love the fearless girl and are sick of the charging bulls from 1987, just think about the juxtaposition of one work with another and how that might change the original meaning of the work. Like, let's take a poem. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. But if we juxtapose it with this other piece of alt-poetry, it takes on a different meaning. I believe the ability to measure with precision the degree of human activity's impact on the climate is subject to more debate on whether uh, the climate is changing or whether human activity contributes to it. We continue. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet-flowing breast. No, I think that, that measuring with precision uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's tre- tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. See what I mean? And it's not just poems. It's music. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. And if confirmed, will you insist upon that equal accountability in any K-12 school or educational program that receives federal funding, whether public, public charter, or private? I support accountability. Equal accountability for all schools that receive federal funding. I support accountability. Equal accountability for all schools that receive federal funding. I support accountability. Okay, is that a yes or no? That's a, I support accountability. Do you not want to answer my question? And comedy, comedy too, like this classic Simpsons episode. We understand, Homer. After all, we are from the land of chocolate. Mmm, the land of chocolate. Sitting at the table, we had finished dinner, we're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it. And I was given the message from the generals, that the ships are locked and loaded. What do you do? Mmm, cruise missiles. On the show today, a bit more of that chocolate cake interview and other places where we might need to stop the tape. That'll be in the spiel. We're also running a bonus segment today. Sometimes I save these for Friday. But why shouldn't our Wednesday-only listeners be privy to a bonus segment? If you're a Slate Plus subscriber, stick around for that. If you're not, 
become a Slate Plus subscriber. But first, they are a filmmaking duo responsible for a couple of the really good, mostly improv movies over the last few years. But now Joe Swanberg and Jake Johnson have a new idea. Let's write it out beforehand. Mostly, mostly write it out. The guys behind Drinking Buddies and Easy are out with a new film. We'll ask if structure ruins everything, and that's up next. Jake Johnson and Joe Swanberg are the team behind Win It All, Swanberg director, Jake, actor. They both write, and we're going to get into their writing process. Now, Swanberg is the director of uh, Hannah Takes the Stairs, the series Easy. With Jake, he has collaborated on Digging for Fire and Drinking Buddies. The new one, Win It All, has more of a plot that contains or could contain the description sets things in motion like this. When Eddie, a small time gambler accepts an invitation to duffel bag sit for a friend who's going up the river, he finds the bag contains wads of cash and that sets things in motion. The problem is he is a loser, loser, loser. Who's never won USDA prime rib loser to quote Keegan, Michael key, Joe, Jake, how are you guys? Great. Thank you for quoting him there. And that wasn't part of your description. (laughs) That would have been a really terrible lead into this. This is just me. This is my new way of interviewing, editorializing about guests I've been pre-chatting with for a minute and a half. Yeah, before it even starts, you just set us up to lose. I was with you. uh... (laughs) He's a very ugly loser, Uh played by a very ugly loser who's stupid. Sad, sad, very loser. sad. This movie is very but sad. But these days, that kind of that kind of description makes your circulation triple or something. <laughs> Win it all, want. made by very sad losers. Sad <laughs> losers do not see. <laughs> it's very stupid to go to Netflix because they're not good enough for the cinemas. Losers, sad. <laughs> I couldn't see them at the big theater. They're losers. Very sad. Don't watch it. <laughs> so is this uh this collaboration was this more as they say written as opposed to you know improved? Absolutely. Yeah, so this one started off, you know, this is our third one. We did Drinking Buddies, mm-hmm. we've done Digging for Fire and we've done this. And Joe and I have both, you know, we like working together and we like figuring out what model works the best, you know, like every relationship there's, you know, you have to change together. And this one was we decided to try the the script and try a three act structure and try having plot points and see what we thought. So we wrote a script that we developed, you know, our agents saw it and gave notes. We showed it to other writers and got thoughts, but the actors are all still free to improvise how they say things and how they play a beat, but nobody could improvise kind of a story change. In the past they could. So like digging for fire, the couple didn't have to be married. Well, kind of, I mean, it's, it couldn't be that you couldn't improvise you you can't say no and change everything but a right. character okay so but a character, improv rules right but a character could basically come in and talk to joe and say or an actor could come in and say what if we did this and if it seemed exciting that we could then do that so it, the mm-hmm. the structure of it wasn't on a linear path of we are all necessarily getting here it's we know where it needs to end and let's let all these people together find how we get to that ending and Joe, I've read that you said, uh, that guy I was just talking there, Jake, he's a really good writer. And you said he's a better writer than you? Come on. 
Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, r- attempting that- to write a screenplay was the worst two, six weeks that turned into two years of my life. Uh, I am a horrible writer. I do not like it at all. I don't think I'm good at it. Uh, so yeah, I basically was just writing Jake's coattails during the quote unquote writing process of this movie. But that's not totally true in my opinion. <laughs> so I, I came up as a writer, and that's what I originally wanted to do. And I do like structured movies, and I like the three acts, and I like all that stuff. So Joe and I talked about an idea for a movie. Uh, and then when we both liked the idea, I put it in a three-act structure with st- you know 12 story beats, if you will, with twists and turns. Mm-hmm. And I pitched it to him. So And then Joe liked it and said, I'm willing to spend time on it. And then we really did develop it together. Like the whole second act was our collaboration and how we then tell the story and how we build the relationships and how to keep everything real and three-dimensional. That was fully both of us. And that was also bringing the cast in because Joe Latruglio helped really fill out the brother Ron and Joe helped us create the father character backstory and Keegan really made the sponsor his own. And the way Iceland DeBrez plays Eva was slightly different on the page but her instincts were good, so we then change around her. So everybody had ownership of their own character, uh, but Joe and I had ownership of the uh, story. But if you're a good improviser, as Joe is, how can you be a bad writer? I mean, all writing, to some extent, starts off as an original idea that, you know, wasn't formed before it was formed. Joe is not a bad writer. <laughs> Joe finds writing very boring. No, not boring. Uh, Horrible. But, I am a bad writer. I, I, here, <laughs> what I would say in my own defense is I know how to collaborate, and I also, I, I'm an editor, so, you know, there's an instinct in me to tighten up story and to make connections between things. So I, I think I have the tools to uh, put a story together, but you know, left to my own devices, I, I literally have spent days staring at a computer screen, trying to come up with a name for a character and then piddled away the day, like surfing the internet. And then I was just like, Oh God, this is not a profession for me. You've got to admit that you're an idiot. You've got to admit that you are an idiot. All right. I admit I'm an idiot. I need you to say, my name is, and I am an idiot. Why? Because that just the declaration is real, and then okay. it becomes real. If I, if I know that you're willing to humiliate yourself like okay. that, then I know that you're serious. My name is Edward Garrett, and I am an idiot. Okay. And my friend Gene uh, was right. I'm addicted to losing. That was easy for you. Yes, you were right. So you must really be in trouble. I'm in trouble. Jake, are you a gambler in real life? I am not into the zone of Eddie, but gambling is something, poker especially, is something that I I really love the game and I really love to uh, play. Yeah, me too. And the the poker parts didn't seem unrealistic or too... um, to pandering to the audience. Yeah, well, it's funny because Joe, who doesn't really know the ins and outs, he's not a big poker player. We had to shoot every scene in a way that he found it entertaining as the director because he was our oh, kind of, he was the audience uh, yep. while doing it. And I insisted that I hate in poker movies when the people playing poker don't know how to play poker. And there's like the little things that you're like great card player says the wrong thing at the wrong time. So we had mm-hmm. a nice balance of trying to keep the integrity of poker, but seeing it through the eyes of somebody who just wants to watch a movie. And that was our director. Yeah, so uh, absolutely right. And also, even though I'm not a poker player, I'm, I, I really am uh, into authenticity and reality in all the work that I make. So it's one of the fun things about making a movie. It's a, sort of entree into a world 
that often I don't know. And through the process of making the movie, I'm able to, you know, hang out with people who do that thing. And so, you know, I was looking for the movie to feel real. So Jake and I really balanced each other out nicely where I leaned on him to make sure that all those card playing sequences felt right. And then he leaned on me to make sure that we weren't getting lost in the technical weeds of card playing. And we're still sort of focusing on entertainment. Not to, well, it's a good yeah. example, Joe, because I was just going to say, Joe, when you say I'm a good editor, you might mean getting the film afterwards, cutting it up. But, you know, from jur- a journalism standpoint, that's what a great editor does. The reporter might have all the rarefied information and the editor essentially plays the part of the audience who's interested but doesn't know this. Yeah. So even on set or in the moment, you're saying you're going over my head, whereas the expert saying, OK, this would be unrealistic. And from that comes, you know, a uh, sort of alchemy of both authenticity and things that will appeal to an audience. That's the hope. I mean, for me, it it would be horrifying to lose a card player because we were so far off base that somebody was just like, I can't even watch this thing. So it was about staying in the zone while also making sure that, you know, me, the layman, is uh, feeling like I'm watching real poker while not having to know how to play the game myself. Now, Jake, I was thinking about the similarities and differences of your character in this movie and the character you play on New Girl. Hey, no huffing. Come on, guys. Take these seriously, Winston. (laughs) I didn't buy the balloons to have you guys. If you do that one more time, I'm going to break your faces in. (laughs) Uh, My dad died. I got to go back to uh, Chicago and... uh... Go to the funeral and everything. Well, you guys gonna say anything or? That's too. Well, we're so sorry. If there's anything we can do, please. Do you think Nick is an archetype we've seen before? Do you think is he is? unique as a sitcom or comedy character? Is Nick? Of course, he's unique. Yes. Uh, well, no. I know. We, I know we're all unique. Fla- this is what I was thinking. Yeah, of. Lead it's, me to where you're trying little, to go. Well, well, he's a little he's a little weird in that he both is the romantic lead, right? Yes. But he's also constantly put down as Absolutely. A okay, big I see loser. what you're saying. Yes. And yeah. he's a and really weird guy. If you actually he's break really down weird. if you like the book, he's so he's a writer now and he's published. But the inside stuff that really makes me laugh is when the characters are making fun of his book, he can't spell rhythm and one of the pages is a crossword puzzle. So this mm-hmm. is a guy who tried to get a book published that like page 42 is a crossword puzzle and that there's also like, but if you break that down in reality where that show exists in reality, this dude has some mental stuff in a real way. And yet he's with Jess and when they're together, it's very grounded. So a really funny thing about Nick as a character is there is a Nick when he is with the guys like a Nick Schmidt and Winston. But then when yeah. Nick and Jess are together, He's a different guy. So I've put it in my head. The way to play that is when Nick is with his friends, it's one side of him and being with her is who he's aspiring to be. Because in a one 21 minute episode, Nick will go from a Nick Schmidt story, which is utterly ridiculous uh, to a very grounded moment with, you know, Zoe at the end of it where they're saying really sweet things. So he is, in my opinion, a super unique, weird character to play on network TV um, but I don't know if it's been done because there's so much content. I'm not watching everything. Yeah. Uh, no, he's, you, you made me realize he's both neurotic and devil may care. Yeah. He, yeah. Well, it's, the, it's a, a weird part to play because I don't think I'm a natural leading man. 
uh, I think I'm a character actor. And so in that show, Nick is both. So some episodes, Nick's like yes. taking Jess out in a suit and opening the door. And then the next one, he's eating too many bowls of chili and has a stomach ache. <laughs> <laughs> and the funniest episodes for me is when it combines it and like Nick and Schmidt are having a burrito eating competition and they're seeing how many burritos Nick can eat. And then Jess goes like, hey, Nick. And all of a sudden, I cl- I turn and hair and makeup have cleaned the chili off my chin, and I go like, "Hey, you look great." And I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> uh, but that is kind of the fun of that show is that it is both. That is really interesting, and it brings me, I guess, to the last thing I wanted to ask you about Netflix. I always I res- I liked your movies. Uh, I res- I respected them. I always had this little inkling in the back of my head, not just your movies, but whenever you read the press and they made it, you know, whatever it is, Brothers McMullen, they made it for $48,000. They made it for $98,000. Great. It still cost me 14 bucks to see it in the movie, you know? Yeah. It still totally. costs me. But now that it's on Netflix, it's it's more like, you know, I don't I don't care how much a TV show costs to make. Nope. Easy's awesome. You could throw a since you work so fast, you could throw a bunch of these up on Netflix. I don't have to pay the 14 bucks. I think this might be, you know, the future for you and people who work like you. Yeah, I I, I don't disagree. And it's been interesting over the course of my career. I put movies out in every kind of way imaginable. When it all is my 20th feature, I think. So, I, you know, I've Jesus, gone... Jesus, how old are you? <laughs> 35. It's don't been lie. A, it's He's been 61 a years old. <laughs> <laughs> he dyes his hair. He looks terrible in the mornings. <laughs> But I put movies out every different kind of way, straight to Vimeo, straight to DVD, uh, traditional theatrical, day and date theatrical. Like I I know every single version of a release that exists. And uh, this Netflix release is my favorite version of all of them. And, you know, paired with some festival play and a few theatrical screenings in the major cities, I have checked off every box that I want to check off. And the truth is now that the movie's available, to everybody around the world who has a Netflix subscription, I feel like I'm getting a, a, a sort of like wide studio release that only something like Beauty and the Beast gets, you know? It's like uh, very hard to argue with the fact that we made an independent film in Chicago that everybody in the world can see today. Maybe you could do the inverse of Beauty and the Beast and after this hits, make the cartoon version of it. <laughs> <laughs> Animated win it all. But mm-hmm. e- but even yeah, but even going to the future stuff because it's something we talk about, and I'm not even saying this as a PR man for you know theaters, but I think it always depends on the product. Because if Joe and I make a movie and it's a it's a theatrical release and somebody wants to do it, then we would love to go that direction. Like Get Out, for example, cost them four to five million to make it. That's an indie, like the forty eight thousand ninety eight thousand model you were talking about. Well, our movies yeah. are more than that. You know, we, yeah. we are putting a movie into it. You know, we're living in the world of making movies that aren't, you know, a hundred million, but they do cost money because we do want some production value in them. And if you make a movie that could get butts in the seats, then I, I don't want to watch Get Out on Netflix. I want to watch that in the theaters. But Win It All is a movie that we think you'll have just as much fun at home as you would in the theaters. And so this movie works, but I do think each movie still will have its own specific life. And I wouldn't want all these movies just to exist on streaming because some of them need to go in a theater in my opinion jake johnson joe swanberg they are the well one is the star one is the director they are both the writers but as we've been hearing everyone's the writer yes on and, and there's only one star thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys thank you very thank you much. appreciate it <laughs> Thank you.
And now the spiel. Kellyanne Conway was interviewed at the Museum, which is a fun DC tourist attraction for those who've already hit the amusement park. This was a conversation about the White House and the press, and representing the press was Michael Wolff, a journalist who likes the spotlight, does not shrink from the limelight, but today showed mostly flop sweat. It was a disastrous interview, which convinced me that folks like Kellyanne Conway are just better than folks like Michael Wolff in communicating in the way people actually communicate these days, you know, electronically. Don't believe me? I will play Michael Wolff's first question in full. Now, bear in mind, this is the one question where he doesn't have to react to anything Kellyanne Conway threw his way, right? So he's not off his game yet. Shouldn't Bowling Green massacre him? He sets the agenda. And if he's at all unsure about how this is going to go, why not just write out this one question beforehand? He had a, a tablet with him. He could just read it from that. Alternatively, he could have maybe just thought about the question before he hits the stage. This seems not to have been what happened. So nice to be here. Uh, Kellyanne and I have been having this conversation now since um, since early in the transition, um, starting in a conversation about about the uh, uh, about the media, which appropriately started at um, at Michael's restaurant in New York. Um, uh, So uh, a a report card, Um, uh, the media, let's let's make um, let's make the F. F grade, uh, the media as, um, uh, as Steve Bannon's opposition party and an A grade as, um, um, the Obama honeymoon. Um, where, where, where are we now? I transcribed it. At one point it says about the, ah, ah, the media, which appropriately started at, um, Michael's restaurant in New York. So, um, ah, so, ah, 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 a report card, um, ah, the media, let's make, let's make the effort. Okay, I'm going to stop there because you just heard it. But aside from having more ums than a meditation room, what does that continual mean? What's the A? What's the F? Kellyanne's going to give an Obama administration press corps an A? I don't get it. She doesn't get it. Kellyanne just quickly deflected this by saying, I'm a mom, I know report cards, I give it an incomplete, and Wolf didn't press her, he never pressed her. He was vague, he was ethereal, he was fumfering. There are these, these issues which have been articulated in many, many times, from, from the president down, issues with the media, um, um, a, a real... Um, he was entirely impotent. And Kellyanne displayed a distracting talent for sophistry, and Wolf had no answer. And you know what happened on Friday? What the country saw happen on Friday. For the first time in 11 years, a Republican nominee to the United States Supreme Court was confirmed and has since been sworn in. And 40 years from now, no one's going to remember the staffers' names. Aha. Perhaps Wolf could have said, yes, but the definition of news is what's new. And the amount of news between Gorsuch confirmed and Gorsuch sworn in was negligible. But the news of Steve Bannon and his unprecedented brand of angry nationalism in decline, that's significant. Wolf did not say that, nor did he have a counter when Kellyanne made a claim like this. It's not exciting to cover um, energy independence. He should have butt in. Okay. Name one policy that assures energy independence. And then she would have answered, well, coal. And he should have said, 
Your coal signing had nothing to do with energy independence. Putting aside all claims about how many jobs in the environment, energy independence means importing energy from a foreign source. The United States does not import coal. In fact, coal competes with natural gas, and we don't import that either. It has nothing to do with energy independence. It was a wasted opportunity. Michael Wolff, media critic, criticize thyself. Now, there's another form of questioning one could take with a Trump official. It was embodied by Maria Bartiromo of Fox Business, and it also ain't that great. So up top, you heard me play the chocolate cake part of that interview. But in a lot of ways, that moment that's getting all the attention, that was really just the icing on this metaphor. This interview contained more than a few instances where we needed to stop the tape. I am waiting right now for so many people. You understand. Hundreds and hundreds of people. And then they'll say, why isn't Trump doing this faster? You can't do it faster because they're obstructing. They're obstructionists. Stop the tape. They, the Democrats, may or may not be obstructionists, but right now they're only potential obstructionists. Trump just hasn't nominated anyone for most of these open positions. No pushback from Bartiromo. Let's continue. The car industry is not going to leave us anymore. Believe me, the car industry is staying in our country. They were leaving. If I didn't win this election, you would have lost your car industry to Mexico and to other countries. They're not leaving anymore. Believe me, there's retribution if they leave. Mm. There was no retribution. They Stop leave. the tape. Not right. I don't have much more than not right. But let's continue. Don't forget when Jim Comey came out, he saved Hillary Clinton. People don't realize that. He saved her life because I called Comey one. And I joke about it a little bit. Stop the tape. Yeah, you know what? People do realize that. It got quite a bit of attention at the time. And it saved her in the sense that Comey didn't bring an unprecedented prosecution, but he did make unprecedented damning remarks as to why he didn't prosecute. But let's continue. Look, wiretapping is an old-fashioned thing. And most people think it's the same anymore. thing. Okay, you don't have a lot of wires. Look at this room. This room used to have a lot of wires. Now it doesn't have so many wires. Stop the tape. Yeah, fine wire point. And yet... Bartiromo doesn't exactly distinguish herself from a marionette. Hey, look, what I did should have been done by the Obama administration a long time before I did it. And you would have had a much better, I think Syria would be a lot better off right now than it has been. Obama pushed, he, he resisted doing when it. When I looked, he, well, he didn't do it. I don't know what happened, but he didn't do it. And in fact, they had a big attack right after he drew the red line in the sand. They had a Stop very- the tape. Okay, I just need to address, this is more of a pet peeve, but... Obama didn't draw a red line in the sand. You either draw a red line or you draw a line in the sand. If you draw a red line in the sand, the sand's just going to cover it up. That's not the phrase. Oh, and also the part where he said we'd be better off. He was begging the president not to intervene in 2013, right? He knows that we saved the tweets and knows he said that. All right, let's go on. We've just fired 59 missiles, all of which hit, by the way, unbelievable from, you know, hundreds of miles away, all of which hit. Amazing. Unmanned. Brilliant. It's so incredible. It's brilliant. It's genius. Yes. Stop the tape. Yes. Missiles are generally unmanned. Otherwise, they, you know, kill the dude riding on top of the missile. Also, they all hit. Amazing. No, not amazing. Kind of amazing that he'd be amazed. Finally, this part. So what happens is I said, we've just launched 59 missiles heading to Iraq. Well, you headed to Syria. Yes. Heading toward Syria. Stop the tape. Syria. In other words, Iraq. Assad, in other words, Hitler. China's a currency manipulator. In other words, they're not. This is the final version on healthcare. In other words, we'll fiddle with the bill some more. I like Steve Bannon. In other words, I'm going to demote him. And he was eating his cake and he was silent.
And that's it for today's show. I want to tell you, we are having a guest host in this chair tomorrow. She's Alexandra Petri. Her writing for the Washington Post is fantastic. She's very good on Twitter. I hope she talks about puns. Let's see. It's very selfish of me. I said, I have a podcast. I'd like to hear this person on it. The gist was produced by Chris Berube. He and I met in, uh, uh, appropriately enough, uh, mm, uh, the bar at the Algonquin Hotel um, mm, in an effort to appear really, really odious. Mary Wilson, gist producer, is a fan of Joyce Kilmer's second best known work, Shrubs. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, found out Kilmer is a guy. He's a guy. He's a dude. All this time stopping on the New Jersey Turnpike. They don't tell you. Joyce is a dude. Chief Content Officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers, is a man upon whose bosom snow has lain. I mean, the fellow intimately lives with rain. We want to thank Dan Musisi of WBEZ, who helped us record the interview with Jake and Joe. Tomorrow, as I said, Alexandra Petri, the gist, looking to insert my own work of cast metal between Fearless Girl and Charging Bull. I call it protective netting. With protective netting, a contemplation in steel and tin, I think all sides win, especially safety. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.